The state of California is known for sunshine, surfing, and Beach Boys music, which made us wish they all could be California girls. Today, left-wing politics and loose living also characterize the Golden State. 2,000 years ago, a significant Greek city called Corinth had a similar immoral reputation. Ancient Corinth offered something for every known sinful desire, making the phrase, to be like a Corinthian, synonymous with notorious evil, debauchery, and prostitution. However, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ was made for a city like Corinth, so the Apostle Paul planted a church there, but he found it difficult to keep Corinth out of the church. Sound familiar? What part of your life looks more like Corinth and California than Christ? I'm Ron Jones, and this is Something Good. Let's talk about love on this Tuesday edition of Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones. Hello, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for stopping by. Well, the Corinthian church had plenty of problems and plenty of questions. Questions about the gift of speaking in tongues, about eating meat offered to idols, about divorce and remarriage. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul offers a practical response to these and other issues. But the foundational principle upon which all his answers rested was love. Stay with us now as Ron continues his teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible, or visit somethinggoodradio.org to hear any of Ron's messages on demand on your schedule. That's somethinggoodradio.org. From Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he serves as lead pastor, here's Ron with part two of his Something Good radio message, 1 Corinthians, Body, Life. There is not much of a stomach in most churches and with most pastors or elder bodies to exercise the kind of discipline in the body of Christ that Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul chastises the Corinthians for their boasting. And here's how the boasting sounds today. Well, you know, we're, we're open for everybody. We're, 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 we're liberal and we're, we're this and we're that. And there was some of that talk in Corinth. And Paul chastises them for their boasting and then highlights the seriousness of the matter by saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, we, we should take sexual immorality and any sin in the church for that matter. Uh, sexual immorality is no more gross sin than gossip and slander and backbiting and divisions and all of that. We should take it seriously and understand a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It can easily destroy a church. In chapter 6, Paul uses his apostolic authority to address another disorder in the church. Apparently, believers in Christ were filing lawsuits against their own brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul says, in effect, how dare you do this? Why are you doing this? You know, if you think about it, you, know, you might have a dispute or a conflict in your own you know, family. Would you ever sue your, your, your physical blood brother or sister or your parents? No, you work it out like a family. But, you know, Brother Bob over here was suing Sister Susie over here and, and, and Sister Joy over here was, was suing, you know, Brother Peace over here. There are lawsuits flying across the church. And I love again how when the church goes low, Paul goes high. 
He says in chapter 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are here to judge angels and much more than matters pertaining to this life? He says, listen, you're going to be the judges and arbitrators of fallen angels one day. Can't you resolve your conflicts here on earth within the body of Christ and the family of God? Believers should arbitrate their conflicts within the Christian community, believer to believer. That's the instruction in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Yeah, yeah, the Corinthian church was a messed up church. It really was. Okay, understand from where they're coming. Uh, their, 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 their journey towards sanctification was maybe longer than those in the Jerusalem church. Paul ends chapter 6, this section on body life disorders, by returning to the subject of sexual immorality and encouraging them to flee from it, he says, because the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And the apostle, uh, again, elevates the Corinthians' understanding of their physical bodies by asking, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, don't act like a Corinthian. Don't visit the temple of Aphrodite on Friday night and engage in gross sexual immorality with this body of yours that is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Still with me? <laughs> Amen or oh my. Yeah, this is a tough letter, isn't it? Well, in chapter 7 through the end of the book, Paul uh, begins to address some of the questions that this young, somewhat immature body of believers has about you know, body life. He exercises his uh, apostolic authority in doing so. And in chapter 7, he first addresses issues relating to marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, celibacy. Uh, we don't have time to dive into all of that. That's a fair question and a question that people even have today. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, people ask, you know, Pastor, what's... What's the church's view on these things? What, what's, the, what's the biblical view on these things? And Paul encourages uh, the Corinthians in uh, various situations to live as God called them to live. In chapters 8 through chapter 11, Paul then addresses uh, the matter of Christians exercising their Christian liberty. What do I mean by that? There are some matters that are not uh, black or white, they may be a little bit gray. You have the liberty to do this or not do this. And people have different views on things. For example, back then for the Corinthians, the question was, was, should Christians eat meat in the marketplace that was previously offered to a pagan god in the temple? You see, at the temple of Aphrodite on Friday night, oh, they had a big old celebration there, a worship experience they called it. The temple prostitutes were there. There were animals that were sacrificed and worship was engaged to the pagan Greek gods. And some of that meat was left over, and they took it into the marketplace the next day, and it was actually the cheaper meat, less expensive. And so if you went to the grocery store the next day, you know, you could buy this for, you know, $5 a pound or this for $3.99 a pound, only this over here 
you know, was meat that was left over that was offered in the temple the night before? Should, should a Christian do that? And Paul argues, meat is meat. Doesn't matter, meat is meat. And some people may be bothered by that and other people not bothered by it, but you as a Christian need to exercise your Christian liberty to purchase that meat carefully. And consider, he says, the weaker brother or sister and not cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. And here's his overarching principle. Love limits our liberty. I remember when I was in seminary, a professor of mine, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to talk on this subject, and he'd also add, and pastors, uh, leadership limits your liberty. And he would say, others can, but you can't as a leader. Why? Got too many eyes watching you. And, and possibly misunderstanding your actions over here. What's interesting here is that in this section of Scripture, chapter 8 through chapter 11, we find, um, uh, no, that's, that's later. I was going to say chapter 13. Just beyond it is chapter 13, the great love chapter. And Paul is setting them up for that. Love for your brother or sister in Christ limits your liberty. Even though you may be the more mature believer and say, I, you know, meat is meat, I, I can do this. I can go to the movie theater. I, I can imbibe in alcohol, though not drunkenism. I, I can go here, I can go there, I can do this, I can do that. And there's not a hard, you know, black or white moral instruction in the scripture. All but you gotta consider your brother or sister in Christ. You know, parents, while your kids are growing up and you got eyes on you, you need to limit your liberty. There are things that I, I would never do that I have the freedom to do when my kids were young, but I might do now that they're adults. That's just, that's just wise parenting. And it's wise living in the body of Christ too when we have people with different thoughts, different ideas there. Paul's motivation for surrendering his rights is clear when he says in chapter 9 and verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I don't want my actions to become a stumbling block to a conversation, even to an unbeliever. And so I, I, I choose not to do things that I have the liberty to do, he says. We'll return to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones in just a moment. To listen to any of Ron's messages on demand, please visit somethinggoodradio.org. While you're there, be sure to access the Something Good digital library with more than 500 hours of video and audio teaching from Dr. Ron Jones. Search the streaming library by scripture or topic to find answers about your Bible questions and grow in your Christian faith. Again, that's the Something Good digital library at somethinggoodradio.org. Something Good Radio and free resources like the Something Good Digital Library only exist through the faithful prayer and financial support of listeners like you. And today, when you invest $50 or more in the media ministry of Something Good, we have a very special thank you gift to share with you. Volumes one and two of Ron's book, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Request them today for your gift of $50 or more. When you order the print versions, you'll also get unlimited access to the Route 66 Digital Library. That's a $275 value. 
The online library includes electronic versions of the book, plus video sermons, audio messages, and downloadable sermon notes on all 66 books of the Bible. Donate online at somethinggoodradio.org. Again, that's somethinggoodradio.org. Or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. You can also call our offices at 757-276-1099. Ron joins me in the studio after today's message, so stay with us. But first, let's pay close attention to the second half of today's Something Good radio message, 1 Corinthians body life he also urges us to consider the glory of god in chapter 10 and verse 31 he says so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god now he transitions to the subject of public worship in chapters 11 through 14 and during that time keep in mind he inserts this great chapter on love you know everybody knows first corinthians 13 many of you had it read Uh, in your wedding ceremony. It soars and elevates above any Shakespearean prose about love. It is the greatest uh, uh, literary treatise on love found anywhere in the world. Uh, Of course, it's inspired uh, by God and uh, penned by the Apostle Paul. We usually pluck it out of its context and put it over here, and we love to talk about love and all, all that it talks about there. But in the context here, Paul is talking about some thorny issues relating to public worship. And what he wants us to understand is that love is the Christian ethic that will help the Corinthian believers navigate their way through these thorny issues that threaten to divide them. Specifically relating to these subjects, the role of women in the church, first half of of chapter 11, the practicing the Lord's Supper, latter half of chapter 11, spiritual gifts, chapter 12, speaking in tongues, chapter 14, any of which threatens to divide the church over opinions and interpretations and this or that. He inserts this chapter 13 right in the midst of that and gives them a PhD course on love and says, just remember, love limits your liberty and love will keep you from devolving into all kinds of trouble over these kinds of subjects. Of course, nothing should unite believers more than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the letter, he puts the cross of Christ at the center of the conversation. But in chapter 15, he returns to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I almost picture Paul kind of shaking the the dirt off him a little bit, you know, going through these thorny issues and uh, imagining how it would divide people and, you know, trying to get them to love one another. And then as the church goes low, Paul goes high again. And we have another one of the great chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's treatise on the gospel and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins this way in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, I love how he calls them brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. As messed up as this church was, they were still children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 1, he calls them saints. Saints and those being sanctified by God. Paul never loses sight of the fact that though they are acting like pagans, they are not. 
They are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, now here it is, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, amidst all of your questions and your quarreling and your, your debauchery living and all of that, he says, let's get back to first things. The most important thing is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to unite around that. In other words, the other matters he addressed in his letter are important but secondary, and they should not divide the church. He states the facts of the gospel. And then he goes on to mention the many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and boy, we could spend all kinds of time there. He's like a capable defense attorney who proceeds to defend the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 15, making it the linchpin of Christianity. He says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. How many times have you heard me say, as your pastor, if Christ is not raised from the dead, go home. This is a fool's adventure. But we went to the empty tomb in Jerusalem. And if you go with us next time, I'll take you there. He is not here. He is risen. In his great discourse on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul answers three questions. Will the dead rise? How will the dead rise? When will the dead rise? And considering the certainty of the resurrection of the dead, Paul declares victory over death through Jesus Christ and urges... At the end of the chapter, this practical application, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, he calls them brothers again, brothers and sisters in Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, when, when Paul goes high and soars and circles the Milky Way theologically, it's never far from practical application. In light of all this, Always abound in the work of the Lord. He concludes his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16 by addressing, of all things, a, a fifth concern and question regarding the offering, their financial stewardship. They had questions about that, how to give, why to give, what to give. He urges them to give regularly and systematically, preparing their offering, he says, upon the first day of the week. Then he gets personal by communicating his travel plans, and he mentions the names of no less than six people within some final instructions and some greetings there at the end. You know, the Corinthians had many, many problems. Many, many problems. They had many challenges in their ministry and in their ministry context. But they were saints of God. You know, a saint isn't some uh, super Christian who gets canonized if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're among the saints. And among those, he says, being sanctified by God. Some of us have a longer sanctification process than others. God's never through with you. 
there's still some of Corinth and some of California in your life and in my life. And that process of sanctification needs to continue. But he urges the Corinthians to live up to their high and holy calling. Listen, you call yourself a Christian, you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ, live like it. Don't go low, go high. Live up to your high and holy calling, he says to the Corinthians. So they look more like Christ than Corinth, and you and I today look more like Christ than California. Thanks so much for joining us for today's Something Good Radio message, 1 Corinthians, Body, Life, and Dr. Ron Jones joins me now. Ron, you covered a lot of ground today in a relatively short amount of time, but one common theme throughout is this idea that love limits liberty. I wonder if you might talk about that a little further. Sure thing, Brian. Happy to do it. Let me start here. If I love you as a brother in Christ, if I'm truly walking in biblical love, I will consider you to be more important than me, your needs to be more important than my own. You know, in Philippians 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So when I talk about love-limiting liberty, I'm directing us away from self and towards others, both to the needs of others and uh, sometimes to the actual requests of others. For example, if a Christian married couple wants to have a glass of wine with dinner in the privacy of their own home, well, Christian liberty clearly allows for that. But what if they have children who are old enough to maybe misunderstand what's happening? I'd say consider their needs. Consider whether your actions might actually cause them to stumble and, uh, and then proceed accordingly as parents. Here's another example. Perhaps an old friend down on his luck uh, needs a place to stay for a few days and you oblige. If he's a recovering alcoholic or if he specifically asks you not to drink because, well, as Paul says, he is of weaker faith, the law of love should prevail over the law of liberty. Here's the bottom line, Brian, according to God's word, and specifically here in 1 Corinthians. We are not to use our liberty to eat or drink uh, whatever and whenever we want. Uh, We must consider whether a weaker believer in Christ might stumble into sin over it. And all the more if the person actually asks you to abstain. Uh, Two more things and I'll stop. First, uh, those in position of leadership in the church, I'm talking about pastors and elders and deacons, Well, they have a a larger platform, and for that reason should be especially careful not to even give the appearance of evil. Uh, The same goes for anyone with uh, young children who might ultimately uh, stumble into sin. Secondly, the law of love can apply to a variety of things, uh, not merely alcohol. I just use that as an example today. So, you know, Brian, the question isn't always, is it wrong? Uh, Very often the question is, is it wise? So in all things, choose wisdom over carelessness and choose Christian love over personal liberty. That's Dr. Ron Jones with some final thoughts on practical Christian living and how the law of love triumphs over the law of liberty. Before we sign off, Ron, how about telling us what's in store next time as you move ahead in your current series? 
Well, Brian, you can imagine that a man like the Apostle Paul, who was uh, a Pharisee at one time, a practicing Pharisee, and who at one time was known to imprison Christians and sanction their execution, that a guy like that would have uh, plenty of doubters as to the authenticity of his new faith in Christ, all the more when he rose to a position of leadership in the early church. So there came a time when he felt obliged to defend his ministry, and by extension, defend his own personal faith in the risen Christ. He took that task upon himself when he penned 2 Corinthians. It is by far the most personal and autobiographical epistle Paul wrote, and we'll begin exploring it next time as I continue my teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. That's tomorrow in Dr. Ranjan's message, 2 Corinthians, Defense of Ministry. Join us then for Something Good. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying God bless and thanks for listening.